Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Okay, the first one's coming to us from My Modern Met, and it's announcing that a massive water battery is now in operation in the Swiss Alps. Oh. Are you familiar with water batteries? I'm not. I was waiting for you to explain it so I didn't have to expose my (laughs) ignorance. (laughs) I should not have called you out. Well, I'll be, I guess, the second to confess I had no idea what a water battery is. But The water battery is a tried and true method for storing energy. It's been around for a really long time. And we're hoping that it's going to give us a glimpse into the future of energy storage. So for the past 14 years, construction crews have been working hard to complete this project. And they all started by hollowing out 11 miles of tunnels in the Swiss Alps. They did this to connect the reservoirs of Emosan and View Emosan, which I think just means old Emosan. (laughs) And so through these tunnels, they dragged building materials to construct an elegant dam in order to retain the upper body of water. And inside, they put these powerful turbines. So when excess energy needs to be stored, that energy is used to pump water from the lower to the upper reservoir. The water then remains at the top of the system until you need that energy. And then what do you do? You just channel it back down. You let gravity do its thing. So it's just simple physics. Yeah, it's like a water wheel, except the river's not natural. You made the river on purpose and only open it when you want to. Exactly. And when you have excess energy that is coming off of solar or wind or anything else, you use that energy to suck up all that lower reservoir water back to the top. So I kind of want to see this done in like small micro urban environments. Like if you've got rain barrels where water is coming down, maybe we have little gutter turbines that can generate some energy. I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, the thing is, I think all that's great. I'm super in favor of non-chemical batteries. I do think that water is going to be one of those resources, like put something else in there that we, <laughs> that we don't need to drink. Because I feel like if, you know, you yeah. have a bunch of people with no water and then you have this big old water battery that's like, I can power your house. It's like, great, <laughs> but I'm thirsty. So like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you do bring up a really excellent point. Maybe in the future or if we look at importing these or exporting as the case may be to Mars colonies or whatever, maybe they become sewage wheels. There you <laughs> go. Just yeah, balancing. so like, that we don't want. Just, you know, (laughs) shunt it back and forth. Nobody cares. (laughs) The future is going to be stinky. (laughs) All right. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This one comes from NPR and it's called Scientists Exhumed Gregor Mendel to Study His DNA. Okay. Mendel, of course, is the 19th century priest who did endless experiments on the color of the pea plants in his little garden. You remember that from biology? Mm -hmm. This is how we did like the, what is it, recessive genes and stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. He discovered the concept of dominant and recessive genes. And he didn't quite get it right because he was, you know, a monk. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) he was doing his best and he definitely helped us. But he was born in 1822. 
making this past year his 200th birthday. And some scientists in his hometown of Brno in the Czech Republic wanted to come up with a creative way to celebrate his contribution to modern genetics. Now, before we continue, a note on the names in this article. They are all Czech and they all have about eight diacritical marks on the letters. (laughs) And I even did my research to try to pronounce them correctly (laughs) until I found out that I am physically incapable of it. Because as just one example... The letter R with the little V over the top of it, that sound is apparently completely unique to the Czech language and is a combination of the rolled R, like in Spanish, and the Z sound. So it's sort of like, but like at the same time and in the middle of a word with a bunch of other sounds around it. Long story short, it's not going to happen. And I apologize. (laughs) But so geneticist Sharka Pospisilova who is the vice rector for research at Masaryk University in Brno, said that some of the options they considered to celebrate Mendel were a festival, a scientific conference, or maybe a nice statue. But then astronomer Jirji Dushek suggested that the most fitting tribute would be to analyze Mendel's DNA, since that's, of course, a technology that directly descends from his research, right? It does, but given the fact he was a monk, you gotta think there was something really sacrilegious about this. Probably. Well, and we're getting to that. (laughs) Oh, okay. So, (laughs) Pospisilova talked with archaeologists and forensic specialists at the university, and they all agreed that it was most likely doable because Mendel's remains were apparently kept in a well-known tomb and were thus expected to be in good condition. But, as you noted, the tomb is owned by Augustinian monks, which was the religious order that Mendel belonged to, and they ended up having to go all the way to the head of the organization in Rome to get permission to dig him up. But, ultimately, they did get it. Wow! So, when they got in there, they discovered five coffins stacked one on top of the other, which was a bit of a surprise, because (laughs) the tomb only had the names of four monks on it. Nevertheless, they were pretty sure that the metal coffin at the bottom of the stack was Mendel's, but they wanted to be certain, and the only way to do that would be to have a sample of his DNA to compare it to, which if they had it, they wouldn't need to dig up his body, (laughs) etc. So there's no baseline to, like, verify is what you're saying. But they went to local museums and swabbed all the artifacts that they had that had belonged to Mendel, including his microscopes, his glasses, and a cigarette case. They even went page by page through all of his favorite books and were lucky enough to find a hair trapped between the pages. Wow! Of course, there was tons of DNA all over these items, and it could have come from anywhere. But the logic was they were only looking for a match with the five that were in the tomb, Mm -hmm. right? They thought it was pretty unlikely that any of these other four random monks in the tomb might have been handling his stuff, at least not as much as he would have been. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, they got a whole bunch of matches with the one body in the metal coffin. Huh. So now they're really sure that one's Mendel, they've got his DNA, and they're ready to do a full forensic workup on his skeleton. He was 168 centimeters tall, or about five foot six. He had an abnormally large skull, which they think means his brain was probably larger than average as well. Hmm. They found genetic variants linked to diabetes, heart problems, and kidney disease. And most interestingly, a gene that has been associated with epilepsy and neurological conditions. And that lines up with some other contemporary accounts that Mendel was prone to severe nervous breakdowns. And it makes it very likely that at least some of his mental health issues were genetic. Mm -hmm. 
So Pospisilova noted that while, of course, it's too late to ask him, she is confident that Mendel himself would have approved of the research being done on him. Because apparently, just before his death, he requested that his brothers at the Abbey do an extensive autopsy on his body for the sake of science. So they're guessing he would, you know, perhaps be honored, but definitely excited to learn about (laughs) his own DNA. Yeah. And the article doesn't say what they plan to do with his bones now that they have him, but I suspect that the massive skull, at least, is probably going to go on display with his other artifacts because mm-hmm. everybody likes a good skull. And if it's like, <laughs> visibly really large, you know, that's whole thing like, oh, Einstein's brain weighed 60 percent more than the average person's. Like, people want to see that stuff. So I feel like that's going to stay out of the tomb. Yeah, that to me would read as legal consent. If he was that excited about whatever <laughs> science could be done at the end of his lifetime, I agree. It's not too difficult to extrapolate. He would have been gung-ho about, dig me up and put me through the spectrometer, whatever. That's right. That's right. It's, it'll hold up in court, I'm pretty sure. So, <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, we've got from New Atlas some new insight into how your gut bacteria could be helping you gain weight. How dare they? <laughs> And we owe this research to a team of researchers from the University of Copenhagen. And what they found is that certain populations of bacteria are more efficient at extracting energy from food, which might be why some people easily pile on the pounds from relatively healthy diets. So, hey, Mm -hmm. not you. It's your gut. That's right. (laughs) Give yourself a little slack here. Um, We already know the bacteria in our gut plays an important role in digestion. So when we eat, we're not just treating ourselves to a feast. We're also giving our microbes a total feast, right? Mm -hmm. And those microbes do influence our metabolism. But it's not exactly clear how much of a role this plays in obesity. So to investigate, the researchers looked at 85 middle-aged, overweight human volunteers. They did study fecal samples, not just for the microbiome analysis, but also to track the energy density of the stool as a measure of a person's gut microbial energy extraction. Mm. The study also investigated an alternative hypothesis for obesity, which is intestinal transit time. So instead Mm. of gut microbes being responsible for more energy extracted from food, It's been suggested that slower transit times for food going through the gut could also play a role. And they're thinking that the longer food is moving through your gut, the more time we have to extract energy because it's just hanging out there longer. Right. right? You can grab more out of it. Yeah, that makes sense. But interestingly, the researchers found that those participants with the shortest intestinal transit time were unexpectedly extracting the most energy from food. So it seemed like the microbiome was most influential on energy extraction with a microbial population dominated by bacteriotis bacteria doing the best job. So they were even able to like identify the strain hmm. that seems to be doing too good of a job and making us all fat, right? Uh-huh. Definitely an unexpected result, but hey, that's what science is for, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes sense if you think about it the other way. Your body's basically like, I'm done with this. Get it out of here. Whereas <laughs> someone with real slow transit time, the body's like, no, I, I need more time with this. I'm not ready. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. And the way that they're connecting this all to weight gain, what they were finding was that subjects who were extracting the most energy from their food weighed about 10% more than those who were not as a efficient. This amounted to about a 20-pound weight difference between the most and least efficient energy extractors. Well, and the one nice thing about it is that if we ever do go post-apocalyptic and there's a shortage of food, the people who are the most efficient are the ones who are going to survive. 
And, mm. you know, the people who are just like, I can eat a whole pizza and don't gain any weight. They're dying <laughs> because they will starve to death. Like that's, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Mad Max is going to get crazy on that <laughs> gourmet front. That's right. All right. Next link. Next link. All right. Well, in a slightly delayed celebration of the new year, we have this article from Discover Magazine called A Brief History of Champagne. Mm. And the first major reveal here is that while we all know the little factoid that if it's not from the Champagne region of France, then it's just sparkling (laughs) wine. In fact, the original Champagne wasn't sparkling at all. It had no bubbles. So grapes were originally introduced and planted in the region, which at that point was known as Northern Gaul, by first century Romans. But the climate wasn't quite as ideal as it was in Italy. So wine from this region really didn't take off in popularity until the 9th century, when Mm. the nearby city of Rheims became the official place where French kings were crowned. And even then, no one was really saying, oh, this wine is amazing. It was just where the people were. So that was where they were going to get their wine. Mm Mm-hmm. By the 13th century, however, travel was a little easier, imports and exports were more of a thing, and the counts of the Champagne region started hosting festivals and fairs, which could sometimes last for up to six weeks, specifically for the purpose of drawing in foreign merchants who would hopefully buy some of their wine and take it back with them. And it worked. By the 14th century, most of the land around the city of Rheims had been planted with vineyards, and the area was considered a major player in the wine industry. But, like I said, the climate wasn't ideal, and one of the big problems was how cold it gets in the winter in France. Mm. Apparently, it was cold enough that the yeast that they used for fermentation would go into hibernation. And then once it warmed up in the spring, they'd go into overdrive, sometimes fermenting so fast that they'd give off carbon dioxide gas. Oh, no. This meant, for one thing, that a lot of French wine bottles simply exploded. (laughs) And for the ones that didn't, a certain percentage of them would contain bubbles, which was at the time considered a failure. It was yeah. a bad batch of wine. They had to get rid of it. So the French were always looking for ways to reduce the amount of wine that they lost to explosion and bubbles. And one of the first to really drill down into the problem was a guy named Dom Perignon. Hey! He was a French Benedictine monk in the late 1600s, and he innovated a lot of different aspects of the wine industry. He created the champagne press, which reduces the amount of time the grape skins are in contact with the grape juice and thus helps with the wine's clarity. He also implemented the use of cork stoppers instead of wooden ones and began using stronger English glass bottles that were less likely to explode, although a large number of them still definitely exploded anyway. (laughs) But most importantly, he cultivated a strain of black grapes that produced a very pale white wine, whereas before, wine from that region had always been pink. Hmm. And he decided, finally, he was going to give up on his bubble tirade. This new white wine should be sparkling and that the bubbles would be a feature rather than a bug. Hmm. And once they decided to lean into it, they started really narrowing down the process for getting just the right amount of bubbles. This largely came down to the amount of sugar that the winemakers would add to the wine before closing up the bottles. Mm -hmm. Too much sugar and the bottles would explode, but not enough. And you'd end up with a flat wine, which they had just decided they didn't want anymore. (laughs) And for a long time, this was an art rather than a science. But in 1836, a French chemist named Jean-Baptiste Francois created a mathematical scale to determine the exact right amount of sugar. Once his scale went into practice, bottle explosions dropped from 90% to 8%. Whoa, science to the rescue. Exactly. And that's a lot of extra wine to celebrate with. (laughs) 
Unfortunately, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the vineyards of Champagne suffered terribly from a blight caused by the phylloxera insect. They had to graft resistant American vines onto their own just to stay in business, and some people claimed that wine from the region never tasted the same after that. They also faced significant losses during World War I and World War II and lost a lot of business due to America's prohibition and the Great Depression. Fortunately, after all that, they bounced back stronger than ever after World War II and successfully lobbied for the right to declare that champagne wasn't unless it was from champagne, (laughs) which is all very exciting. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of champagne. My big takeaway here, honestly, is that monks were really just farmers. You know, Mendel had his peas and Dom Perignon had vineyards. Like, they really seemed to be doing a lot more farming than devotional prayers or whatever they were supposed to be doing. It's specifically innovations in farming. Mm -hmm. Like, it was the closest you could be to being a sanctioned scientist because, hey, what are you going to do? Say, I don't believe in God. I'm a monk. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's like, okay, do you want to be a hard laborer? Or do you want to go live in the nice monastery where, yeah, okay, you've got to pray a bunch of times a day, but then you get to be all sciencey and nerdy about it and not have to. I don't know. I agree. I probably would have joined a nunnery just so that I wouldn't have to. I mean. Work in the fields. Oh, yeah. Or marry someone that you were being forced to marry. Exactly. Like the one guy who was my age in the village. Nah. I'll go to the nunnery. You thought that ages mattered back in marriages back then. That's cute. Fair point. Absolutely fair point. Next link. Next link. All right. This next one comes to us from Smithsonian Magazine, and it's about a British zoologist who wants to reinvent color. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're going to focus on a man named Andrew Parker, who has produced some of the brightest hues in the world. What's his secret? Well, it's something called structural color. He is an English inventor, artist, and zoologist at the University of Oxford. And according to him, color is not a thing. Okay. (laughs) Let that sink in. The world's best colors, he says, come not from pigments or dyes, but from materials arranged into crystalline nanostructures that scatter light into structural colors. Hmm. Okay, well, I had never heard about structural color, but it was first documented in the 17th century, specifically, get this, in peacock feathers. But it is only since the invention of the electron microscope in the 1930s that we figured out how it works. So pigments are molecules that absorb light, except for the wavelengths corresponding to the visible color, which then gets scattered, right? Right. In contrast, the intricate nanoscale architectures of structural color, some only a little larger than an individual atom, they do not absorb light, but reflect it into particular wavelengths. And the results are often vivid and sometimes even shimmery. Okay. And Parker has been working for over two decades on a method to replicate these nanostructures in a lab in order to produce the most brilliant of nature's colors artificially. What he said is that the brightest colors are being produced from completely transparent materials. This is such Hmm. a like paradigm shift. It's amazing. And I highly recommend you check out the Smithsonian Magazine article because it does include pictures. And when it comes to something like this, seeing is definitely believing. And in nature, structural colors are as abundant as pigments, if not more so. Matthias Coley, a mechanical engineer at MIT, says that optical structures in peacock feathers called photonic crystals are what are responsible for the iridescent color. 
Wow. In fact, peacock feathers are actually pigmented brown. And the only huh. reason that we can see these stunning hues is because of nanostructure. And wow. if you think about like the shiny metallic color of some insects, you get those iridescent beetles or the ones yeah. that look like they're made out of solid or molten gold. Well, those are created by multiple layers of transparent materials organized into complex reflective patterns. Even the blues and greens of the human eye, those are structural colors. What? I know. And the interesting question, according to Kale, is whether we can recreate these forms. Basically, can we make the material structures that nature has grown over millions of years of evolution? This is a very highly sophisticated evolutionary structure yeah. that we're really just starting to skim the surface of. So in the early 1990s, Parker was an art student at the University of Sydney, but he spent his time behind a dive mask. He was pretty much, he just wanted to be in the water all the time. Uh. And around twilight, he would see how animals colored by pigments would kind of fade from view. But you could still see certain things like the iridescent hairs of a lobster. And he was like, what? how is this happening? Right. Uh -huh. And underwater, he even came face to face with the importance of vision in nature. So, for example, there's something called the weedy sea dragon. And it's so cute. Google it if you haven't. It's this <laughs> seahorse like fish that waves its body like seaweed. The entire animal is devoted to sight, according to Parker. Its morphology and behavior are dedicated to camouflage and disguise. And he started to realize this was the case with more and more of the animals that he was fascinated by. Vision, as he was coming to see, was at the heart of life. He was like, okay, Art, you're going to go on pause for a little bit because now <laughs> I need to focus on the science of sight. How does this work? So, yeah. you know, casually gets his PhD in zoology, works at museums, including the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in the mid-1990s, where he studied fossils from the Cambrian explosion. He encountered at that time a fossil of Wewaxia, a bizarre spiny ancestor of the mollusk. So he looked at this creature through an electron microscope and found that it had a diffraction grating on its body, meaning a nanostructure composed of a series of parallel grooves that split wavelengths of light into colored rays. Mm. And so in coming across this discovery, he realized when this creature was alive and on the ocean floor, it would have been glimmering. Mm -hmm. And then he was like, well, why did it evolve to reflect this kind of color? The answer he came up with is probably the same as today. Because eyes exist. <laughs> was, right, he right. He was thinking, yeah, the iridescence was probably like a warning signal to predators. And this discovery sent him in search for the first eye in the fossil record, which he found in a trilobite around 520 million years ago. And in 1998, Parker announced his, quote, light switch hypothesis that the evolution of vision sparked the Cambrian explosion. The eye basically huh. caused an arms race, propelling the evolution of hard body parts like shells and bones. And the notion of this let there be light moment in the story of life wasn't really super well received by paleontologists. Sure, yeah. So he pivoted. He began inventing new technologies that mimic the natural mechanisms that fascinated him. He had a biomimetics lab at Oxford where he designed a way to make solar panels 10% more efficient by mimicking the reflector of a 45-million-year-old fly preserved in amber. <laughs> he even discovered the mechanism used by beetles in the Namib Desert to extract water from fog 
and then applied that technology to remove condensation in air conditioning systems. Just so many different applications here. And not only that, structural colors have a lot of other advantages over pigments. So the nanoscale technology can be easily controlled, right? You can tweak these nanostructures to adjust brightness, hue, Mm. even the angles of reflection. They're also a safer and more sustainable alternative to a lot of the pigments that we're mining from the earth, like Mm -hmm. cadmium reds and yellows. Those are toxic. We're still using them. And not only that, pigments are usually going to fade, but structural colors cannot. As long as the nanostructure remains intact, that color will shine on indefinitely. So this is where the research has been. Parker founded a company called LifeScaped, founded in 2015 with the support of Britain's then Prince Charles, and they've been making some pretty amazing advances. Parker has found a way to make sheets of what he calls pure structural color in large quantities. And he is guarded about the specifics, other than to say the precise mechanism is not found in nature. He says it reflects 100% of the light. It cannot get any brighter. Of wow. course, we've patented this now, right? And according sure, to the course, <laughs> I mean, my God, you have to. <laughs> so according to the patent, pure structural color is made of extremely thin sheets of non-conductive material. The layers are stacked together and imprinted or stamped with a nanoscale pattern of rods with curved ends. From there, you can use these sheets to cover objects, as was the case in 2021 when Nike stuck sheets of this pure structural color product onto the surface of a prototype pair of blue and green Air Jordans. And they Hmm. do have a link if you want to see what they look like. They just have that gorgeous, multi-chrome, shimmery butterfly situation going on. So cool. How much do they cost? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a prototype pair. It's kind of like a concept car where it's like, look at what we could do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But Parker has been working with the Swiss multinational company Clarient. They do chemicals. And he has found a way of mixing flakes of pure structural color into paint. Parker has already been approached by a European airline who wants to replace their pigment-based paints on a section of the body of its planes. And perhaps unsurprisingly, Parker's work in structural color has led him back into painting. Started off with an art degree, right? (laughs) Yeah. And if you've got the paints sitting around and somebody needs to test them, you might as well, you know, paint your portrait or whatever you want to do. That's right. If you got it, flaunt it. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of everything being shimmery, I don't know. On the one hand, it sounds very awesome. I can see how it would cause sensory overload at some Mm. point, maybe. Mm -hmm. I mean, if these things are so bright, Mm -hmm. it's like the constant noise we have in our environments now. It's like you start to sort of tune out because your brain's like, look, it's too much Mm -hmm. all the time. Well, maybe that's because we've been evolved to default on pigment reliance, right? right? Because we were talking about trilobites and little creepy crawlies glittering just on the bottom of the ocean, I guess, because they had to stand out. Uh, Yeah, I wonder, maybe our capacity for more color just continues to scale in ratio with the availability of structural color and then someday we'll be able to see uv lights and we won't have that whole like oh we didn't know the platypus was bright turquoise (laughs) you know it's basically like lisa frank knew where we were headed there you go she was a visionary (laughs) we all knew it next link next link all right this next article from science alert starts with a trick question what color are gray wolves I mean, I want to say gray, but I also instinctively want to say definitely not gray. (laughs) Yeah, clearly not. And the answer is sometimes gray, but sometimes they're black. And scientists finally know why. So 
Black gray wolves are found exclusively in North America. And generally speaking, you're more likely to find them the farther south you go. But there are some unusual patterns within that. Some gray wolf packs will be almost entirely black, while others right nearby will have only a few. And they really couldn't understand what was going on. In some ways, the question of why was very easy. Fur color in wolves is determined by the gene CPD-103. And at some point in history, a mutation in CPD-103 emerged first in dogs and then passed over to wolves, making their fur black. Hmm. The black fur mutation is dominant, speaking of Gregor Mendel, so a wolf with just one mutated copy will have a black coat, but could theoretically still have gray-coated cubs. Mm. Nonetheless, black fur has spread much faster and more erratically than a normal dominant gene should. So after looking into it a little more thoroughly, an international team led by ecologist Sarah Cubains of the University of Montpellier in France has now determined that CPD-103 is also involved in encoding a protein that protects against lung infections, including <gasps> canine distemper. Oh! So this, of course, means that if a pack has an outbreak of respiratory disease and the wolves with black coats are more likely to survive, that would account for the faster spread. Mm -hmm. To confirm this theory, they took blood samples from 12 different wolf populations across North America and looked for distemper antibodies, meaning the wolves had survived an infection at some point in their lives. They determined that, yes, antibodies were far more likely to be found in black gray wolves and that black fur in general was more common in areas that were known to have suffered large outbreaks. Interestingly, though, they followed this up with a large-scale examination of the wolf data from Yellowstone Park, where the wolves have been very carefully monitored ever since they were intentionally reintroduced into the park in the 1990s. What they found there was that while the population consists of 55% gray wolves and 45% black gray wolves, only 5% of them had two copies of the black fur gene. This suggests that there are other factors at play that make double-dominant black fur a liability, and that the best chance for survival from both canine distemper as well as this other mystery issue is for black wolves to always be mating with gray wolves and have mm. that mix. They also note that while it may seem odd for one gene to be involved in both disease resistance and fur color, that's actually very common in the animal kingdom. They said disease resistance is connected to coloration in a broad range of insects, mammals, amphibians, reptiles, and birds. And this makes sense because being able to outwardly identify someone mm -hmm. with good genes is very helpful if you want to be able to pass those genes on. Mm -hmm. I mean, realistically, I think we probably have some element of that in humans, too. We just don't know it. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, being symmetrical, that's generally a sign of good health. But it, if it were more specific, like, can you imagine if we discovered a gene mutation that made you resistant to COVID but also made you look like Brad Pitt? Like, <laughs> it just feels like, because it's what's attractive, like what catches your eye. Right. So it may be that attractive people really are better. Like, <laughs> they have at, better well, disease specifically, resistance. Yeah, better at resease, disease resistance or, you know, may have stronger teeth. Like, I, I would, I would right. narrow that focus really. Right. Although, if the double black dominant fur thing applies to humans as well, True. maybe if you're too good looking, you're going to die. Like, there's some <laughs> weakness in that. I don't know. I just... <laughs> 
I feel like if it applies to wolves, it applies to humans. That's well, how science works, right? I mean, <laughs> we do know about genetic selection through senses of smell. Mm. If someone has like a dramatically different immune system that can help diversify and create stronger offspring, that person will smell better to you. Right. So we're already operating off of it, but we're just not sure how much is conscious or scientifically explained. Yeah. Well, we're just focusing on smell instead of hair color. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Because the visual part of it has changed. Like I think of in Asia, how the idea of being pale skinned is a sign of luxury and worth because it comes from a time where you were able to stay indoors all the time and not have to toil right. in the fields and get really brown. But in America, you know, we've had our changes where it keeps fluctuating. So I wonder how much of that may have to do with genetic hardiness, especially in this age of plagues. Right, right. The Just the general ability to adapt mm -hmm. as opposed to wolves who are like, no, we're going straight <laughs> black and <laughs> there's no problem with that because they don't have some sort of weird culture that says, oh, mm -hmm. the black wolves must not work as hard. <laughs> <laughs> The culture war does us all a disservice. Be more like the wolf. <laughs> that's right. That's that's for sure the takeaway. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay. From the MIT Technology Review, we've got a startup says it's already begun releasing particles into the atmosphere in an effort to tweak <gasps> the climate. Have you heard about this? Oh, no. Oh. I have, so I haven't heard about that, but mm. I just finished reading a Neil Stevenson book that was about this very thing. Basically, a, a rogue company that was like, I'm not waiting for scientific approval. I have sulfur. I'm just going to pump it into the atmosphere. <laughs> oh, well. <And> like, <laughs> you'll be delighted yeah. to know that every yeah. one of those details shows up in this article. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad things happened is what Neil Stevenson predicted. So come on, let tell me tell me how awful it's gonna be. Boy, we're gonna need a we're gonna need that title as a sort of capstone. I know, I'm trying to think of it now, it's escaping me. It's, but it's legit. I mean a startup claims it has launched weather balloons that may have already released sulfur particles into the stratosphere, potentially crossing a controversial barrier in the field of solar geoengineering. And if you don't already know, geoengineering refers to deliberate efforts to manipulate the climate by reflecting more sunlight back into space, mimicking a natural process that occurs in the aftermath of large volcanic eruptions, you know, <laughs> earth trauma. <laughs> right, right. So, so it's not technically difficult to do this. You can release such compounds into the stratosphere, but scientists have mostly refrained from carrying out even small-scale outdoor experiments. And it's not clear that any have yet injected materials into that specific layer of the atmosphere in the context of geoengineering-related research. That's in part because it's super controversial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Little is known about the real-world effect of such deliberate intervention at large scale, but they could have dangerous side effects, which I'm sure science fiction has explored at length in this book. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah, the impacts could not only be terrible, they could be worse in some regions than others, which could, you know, provoke a little geopolitical conflict here and there. So some researchers who have long studied the technology are deeply troubled that this company called make sunsets not ominous oh. at all <laughs> appears to have moved forward with launches from a site in Mexico without any public engagement or scientific scrutiny. It's mm -hmm. already attempting to sell cooling credits for future balloon flights that could carry larger payloads. Okay, so let's talk to Luke Eisman, the co-founder and CEO of Make Sunsets. He acknowledges that the effort is part entrepreneurial and part provocation. He hopes that by moving ahead in the controversial space, 
The startup will help drive the public debate and push forward a scientific field that has faced great difficulty carrying out small-scale field experiments amid criticism. He says, quote, we joke slash not joke that this is partly a company and partly a cult. Wow. And not only that, Eisman, who was previously a director of hardware at Y Combinator, says he expects to be pilloried for both, by both geoengineering critics and researchers in the field for taking this step. And he recognizes that making me look like the Bond villain is going to be helpful to certain groups. Mm. Oh, it could have been a quote right out of Elon's mouth. But he says <laughs> climate change is such a grave threat and the world has moved so slowly to address the underlying problem that more radical interventions are now required. Quote, it is morally wrong, in my opinion, for us not to be doing this. So the balloon launch, by Eisman's own description, the first two balloon launches were very rudimentary. He says they occurred in April, somewhere in the state of Baja, California, months before Make Sunsets was incorporated in October. Eisman says he pumped a few grams of sulfur dioxide into weather balloons and added what he estimated would be the right amount of helium to carry them into the stratosphere. <laughs> He expected they would burst under pressure at that altitude and release the particles. But it's not clear whether that happened because he doesn't even know where the balloons ended up. Or Sure, he lost it. He yeah. just set it free and then who knows what happened. That's exactly what happened because there were no monitoring equipment anywhere on yeah. the balloons. So he also acknowledges that they did not seek any approvals from government authorities, scientific agencies in Mexico or hell, anywhere. This was firmly in science project territory, he says, adding, Basically, it was to confirm that I could do it. So <laughs> this has had a lot of back and forth. The uh, MIT Tech Review is holding no punches <laughs> in this assessment yeah. of the article. But it's already happening. And I don't know. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> I mean, the thing is, so in the book, which I've remembered is called Termination Shock, oh, which, by the way, is named after the phenomenon where as you're pumping this stuff into the air, you're not actually getting rid of the heat. You're just sort of trapping it at a higher level. And if you at any point stop pumping things into the sky, all of the heat settles back down at the ground level and just roasts us alive. Oh. So once you once you really begin a massive geoengineering attempt, you can't quit is part of the deal. Anyway, the book uh, doesn't go well for most of the people <laughs> in it. And, um, they, and, and the thing is, there's a lot of really familiar elements to the point where, like, I'm really respecting Neil Stevenson's predictive abilities here because he's talking, like, the main place where they start shooting them off is down in very, very south far Texas, close to Mexico. Might as well be Mexico. Are, mm -hmm. Yeah. They talk a whole lot about the sunsets that are so beautiful. <laughs> uh -huh. They talk about the fact that there are alliances being formed with different countries because some countries, like, for example, the Netherlands, are very excited about not having any more sea level rise. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're shooting all this sulfur off in South Texas, North Mexico, that affects the weather patterns in India specifically in a bad way. It messes with the monsoons. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, India is very against this company and is doing everything they can to basically declare war on them. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting in that it really sort of lays out all the complex issues <laughs> about this. But fundamentally, it is about something that apparently we're going to see. Like, <laughs> oh, it's already happening. Is, yeah, this is really terrifying <laughs> yep. that a company is doing this. Yeah. And I guarantee you more companies are going to do this. What yeah. hit me the hardest is the pull quotes that they included because they could not be a better crystallization of this 
hubristic tech bro. You know, you can even sort of see his own justification where he's like, look, we need to do more research into this. We're not allowed to do more research because people are scared. So I'm just going to start doing it and then they'll have to do more research Mm -hmm. into it. But it's like someone with a good cause taking a bunch of hostages. Yeah. It doesn't help you. Yeah. No one is over to your side now that you're threatening to hurt everybody. I'm thinking of the soup over the Van Gogh the minute that this happened. Like, yeah, you did draw a lot of attention to it. How much sympathy did you actually garner for your cause? How much support? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess we're all moving out of Texas soon. (laughs) (laughs) Yay, the sunsets are even better in Mexico, folks. (laughs) That's right. They've got that yellow tint like in all the movies. That's how you know you're set in Mexico. So they put a weird yellow tint on everything. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Ethereal New Plant Species Doesn't Use Photosynthesis, Alaska's Arctic Waterways Are Turning a Foreboding Orange, and Water from the Sun Has Been Found on the Moon. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 